wife, Karen, and I, uh, we're pretty different. Uh, those of you who know us will know that. And we have really different tastes in movies and TV shows. So Karen loves your classic feel-good movie where the endings are happy and the storylines are resolved and everything is tied up neatly. I don't like endings like that. They're too predictable. I like endings that make you think. I like endings that even end unhappily and everyone dies like Infinity War. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, and I love endings that leave you hanging. They're not resolved. So that you have to keep talking about them. Now, you probably know the movie, the movie, with the most unresolved ending, right? What movie am I talking about? Inception, of course, Inception. Now, for the three people here who may not have seen Inception, sorry, we feel sorry for you, but you should go see it. I won't give you any spoil. No, I will actually. Um, the movie is all about dreams versus reality, yeah? There's technology in, in, in Inception where you can actually go into dreams deliberately. You can create dream worlds, put people in dreams. But um, the, the complex thing is, of course, in this movie, there are also dreams within dreams. So you could wake up but still be in a dream. And so people will actually use the technology to keep going deeper and deeper into dream worlds, and it's a bit like a drug, and choose never to wake up. And so how can you tell in, in Inception that you are in a dream or you're awake? Because it's you know, really hard to know. Well, there's this something called a totem that you're supposed to use. A totem is uh, something that has weight, right? an object, and you can feel it. And it behaves in a way in the real world that would be different to when it's a dream world. So give you an example. The main character, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, his totem is, of course, a spinning top. And he tells if it's a dream or reality, um, when he wakes up from one of these things, whether he's still in a dream or not, by spinning the totem. Because if it keeps spinning and never stops spinning, he knows he's still in a dream. But if it falls over at some point, then it's reality. Spoiler alert, at the very end of the movie, he spins his totem. And we don't actually see if the totem will stop or will keep going. We see it wobble slightly and then boom, cut to credits. And that's the end of the movie. So was it real? Was it a dream? Well, the ending that we just read to Mark's biography of Jesus is like that, isn't it? I mean, it's an ending of sorts, but it's so sudden. Look at verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Cut to credits. Now, in your paper Bibles, you'll probably see there's actually a longer ending. But then you'll also see a footnote that says something to the effect of the earliest and most original manuscripts don't have the longer endings. And it's almost certain that the longer ending was added by confused editors who thought, well, this is just not much of an ending, so I better add something to it. Harmonize it with the other accounts of Jesus. But it certainly didn't come from Mark's pen. Almost certainly, Mark only wrote the shorter ending. Verse 8, sudden ending. That was Mark's original. So why? I mean, did Mark suddenly run out of papyrus? Did he get distracted by his kids while writing? Did he get a heart attack or a stroke and suddenly pass away? No, why? Well, I will want to suggest today that Mark's ending is as deliberate as Inception's ending. And it's so that his biography of Jesus isn't just going to be locked away into history as something interesting to read about that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's actually something that's going to really speak to us and challenge us even 2,000 years on here in Bankstown today. 
Now, how does it do that? Well, you're going to have to listen on, so let's pray and let's get into it. Father God, we thank you for bringing us before your word, the journey that we've seen through Mark. Help us today to see through Mark what you will challenge us with. So help us leave not just intellectually satisfied, but spiritually changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, these bulletins are handy because they've also got three points that I'll be touching on today. So let's go. Point number one. Um, we were at Weekend Away last week, so you will have missed the climax of Mark. I'm sorry, we're not going to go back and do chapter 15, but chapter 15 was the climax of the book. But it's a strange climax because if you uh, did it in your community groups, you will have realized that chapter 15, which is one of the longest chapters, is the chapter that Jesus dies. And that's the climax of Mark. Jesus is confirmed as king in the most unexpected way possible. It is the chapter that Jesus gets crucified and before that rejected, betrayed, abandoned, condemned. It's the chapter that he dies and yet in Mark's story, that is the climax. That is where you see Jesus at his kingliness, if that's even a word. Because it was completely in the plan of God. Because Jesus did it completely willingly. And that's the good news. That Jesus went to the cross willingly to bear the sins of the world. He gladly and courageously takes on the punishment that you and I deserve for the way that we've treated God, for the way that we've rejected God, the way that we've abandoned God and disobeyed God and we've messed up our world and our relationships. He takes it on in our place. So the king shows his kingliness in Mark 15 by being abandoned so that we would never be abandoned, by being rejected so that we would never fear being rejected by God by being punished so that we could be forgiven, by dying so that we would never have to fear death, by going to hell on the cross so that we can go to heaven. You see, at the moment of greatest humiliation and suffering and shame and pain, it's actually the greatest victory of God and His King. So in Mark 15, Jesus' accusers will mock Him and dress Him up as a king. They didn't really believe he was a king, but they'll dress him up and uh, give him a crown, but it's made out of thorns and they jam it in his head. And... But little did they know that that is exactly the kind of king he is, a humble, suffering, servant king whose kingdom is about self-sacrifice and love. Now that, that was all last chapter. That was all by way of catch-up. But I do want to stop here and ask you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, whether you know that Jesus did that for you, that he loves you that much, that he offers you forgiveness that you can have today if you put your trust in him and decide to follow him because it was all for you. Well, that was chapter 15. That's the climax. Now, in chapter 16, the victory of Jesus is confirmed because three days later, as we read, the tomb is empty, just as Jesus said it would be. Three days later, he said, after I get crucified, after I die, after I get betrayed, I will come back to life. I will rise again. He said that at least three times in the book of Mark so far. And then in chapter 16, the tomb is empty. That's what's happened. And here's the thing. If Jesus is alive again, then everything he predicted, everything he says, every promise that he's made must be true. And that victory over sin and suffering and brokenness and death must be true. And he really is the king. 
So here in chapter 16, you've got the confirmation that Jesus really is king. It's the greatest triumph. But also in chapter 16, you've got a picture of human failure. That's really what Mark brings out for us. Human failure at the point of triumph. You see, the women disciples here, they fail big time. When they've been faced with the empty tomb, Jesus is risen. Even uh, the young man who's clearly an angel, even as he explains to them what happens, they fail. Now, in case you think I'm being too harsh, look at what the angel's words are in verse 6 compared with what they do in verse 8. So verse 6 and 7. The angel says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. But then look at the next verse. What did they do instead? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Do, do, do you see? What, I mean, they, they do the exact opposite. Angel says, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Don't freak out. What do they do? They freak out and they're afraid. The angel says, go tell the others. What do they do? They said nothing to anyone. See, at the moment of greatest triumph, they fail. Now, in case you think I'm picking on the women disciples, well, you know what? The male disciples, the 12 or the 11 by this stage, they were even worse. At least the women were still around. And you see, Mark doesn't paint a good picture of any of the disciples, especially the men at Jesus' crucifixion, they all abandoned Jesus. At least the women were still there. They were watching from a distance, but they were still there. At least three days later, they were there at the tomb. Even though they didn't know that Jesus was going to rise again, or they didn't believe that Jesus was going to rise again, at least they were there. The male disciples weren't there at all. But still, it was a failure, wasn't it? And Mark really brings that out. And even more so when we get to point two. So point two on your outlines, understanding what time it is. Now, 200 years ago, um, in 1815, so just a little bit over 200 years ago, a famous battle was fought uh, between Napoleon, uh, who basically conquered all of Europe, uh, and the Duke of Wellington. And it was Napoleon's final showdown. And after this battle uh, that Abba made famous called Waterloo, um, after this battle, Napoleon basically um, loses everything, right? He goes into exile and eventually dies and all that kind of stuff. But... Um, this was the Battle of Waterloo where Wellington, the Duke of Wellington, finally beats Napoleon. And so the message that they needed to send back to England, where the Duke of Wellington was from and the armies were from, was on the day was Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. All right, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Now how they used to send the message was through some sophisticated, well, not by today's standards, but back then a pretty sophisticated system of kind of um, signals using fire and light. So some sort of Morse code signal that they could, I don't know how they did it, but they would send it from one fire station to the next fire station to the next fire station, all the way from the battlefield, all the way to England on the other side of the channel. All right? Only on that day, a fog set in. And so the message was only half sent. So the message they got on the day wasn't Wellington defeated Napoleon Waterloo. The message they got was Wellington defeated. And for hours, that's all they got. Wellington defeated. And they thought that Wellington had lost. 
And it was only hours later when the fog lifted that they got the full message, the rest of the message. It was actually Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. You see, when Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday, God really did triumph already over sin and death. It wasn't as if the cross was Jesus' you know, losing and then the resurrection is his winning. No, no. He won on the cross, just like Wellington defeated Napoleon. But here's the thing. On Good Friday, the message was only half sent. The message on Good Friday looked to the world, at least, and to Jesus' followers as if it was a defeat. But come Easter Sunday, three days later, and the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive, the message is now completed. And the message is not Jesus defeated, but it's Jesus defeated sin and death. Yeah? Jesus coming back to life is the signal that he is really king, that his kingdom has really come, that forgiveness and eternal life really is available for those who trust and follow him. Now, by the way, I just want to say, if you're new to this uh, Bible thing, Christianity thing, um, I want to be really clear that when the Bible here talks about Jesus coming back to life, we mean it literally, okay? Like he actually came back to life, not metaphorically, not as a ghost, not spiritually, that the Christianity hangs on the tomb actually being empty, that a dead man really did come back to life in body. Now, you might be thinking, well, that can't be possible. Dead people don't come back to life, and they don't generally. But this is so important. This is so central to Christianity. Um, and I don't have time to defend it here, but that would be something for you to check out if you're still wondering whether I want to be a Christian or not. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, literally, historically? Are these historically accurate accounts? Because that's worth investigating. And if you want to know more about that, our church really wants to help you do that. Um, next year, we'll, we'll run again our fresh uh, suppers. And one of the questions we'll deal with is, did Jesus really come back to life? But anyway, that's a really important thing to know. This actually happened, right? We believe it actually happened. So Jesus coming back to life, as he said he would, is so important because it's supposed to signal to the disciples, whether they're male or female disciples, that the time is now come. And it's not a time for fear, and it's not a time for silence, and it's not a time for running away. It's the time to get it right. So you'll see under point two, A, B, and C, the time has come, not for fear, but for figuring out. That's the first thing that the women disciples didn't get right. They not only feared, but they didn't understand. Now, fear is an interesting thing in Mark because it's a bit of a theme. In other parts of the Bible, fear of God can be a good thing, a good kind of fear, like um, awe or wonder at God's bigness and glory. In Mark, it's almost always negative, okay? Uh, in Mark, fear means not understanding. Fear means I don't get it. Fear is how people react to Jesus when they see some aspect of him and they just don't get it. So, for example, Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm. But the disciples are afraid because they don't understand who Jesus is and what he's just done. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus casts out a guy with an army of demons in him. And the people all around are freaked out and they're afraid and ask Jesus to leave because they don't understand. In Mark chapter 9, when Peter, James and John see Jesus transformed in his glory on a mountain. We call it the transfiguration. They're afraid because they don't know what to do. They don't even know what to say, okay? 
So right up to now, right up to Mark 16, fear means you don't get it. But I want to say up to now, it might have been an understandable thing, an appropriate thing, because like up till now, it's, it's, you can see why you can't see the crucified Jesus as God victorious, right? It's hard to see victory when you see your king on a cross. It's hard to see triumph in death. It's hard to see when you've only got half the message, like the Waterloo message. See, up till Mark 16, not understanding is sort of understandable. But that was then, this is now, and here's the point. Now that the tomb is empty, and Jesus is alive again, and the full message has been delivered, the time to fear, and time to not understand, should be over. They should have figured it all out now. And so when the women disciples fear here, they were acting as if nothing had changed. Well, what about the second one? It's also not a time for silence, but speaking. Remember the angel says to the women, go and speak. Go and tell the others that Jesus is alive. In other words, now is not the time to shut up. Now is the time to speak up. Now again, Mark, the writer, uses not speaking as a running theme in especially the first half of his gospel. There were times it was appropriate not to speak, and Jesus would tell them to keep quiet. I'll give you some examples on the overhead. Mark 3, Mark 7, Mark 8. Jesus actually tells them not to tell. And the reason is at that point in Mark, his full identity hadn't been revealed. They were open to misunderstand who he is. They would have made his mission even more difficult. But you see, Jesus' command not to speak in Mark also has an expiry date. And this next one will show you. Mark 9 says this, after they came down from the mountain where Jesus was transfigured, he gave them orders, again, not to tell anyone what they had seen, but here's the key, until when? Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Here's the expiry date. And until he rose from the dead, don't tell. But once he's risen, go and tell. You see, now that the final piece of the puzzle has been revealed, Jesus is alive. There's no more confusion. It's all been figured out. There's no more fear. So no more silence as well. Go and speak. Go and tell. Go and proclaim. Start spreading the news. And so the women disciples misread that as well. And thirdly, it's not a time for fleeing, but following. You see, if we uh, had got to Mark 15 last week, we would have seen that as we get to Mark 15, there's an interesting movement of all of Jesus' friends and disciples. The movement is this. Everyone runs away. Everyone flees. Everyone abandons Jesus. And as I said, even the women, they don't abandon Jesus quite as much, but even they couldn't come close. They were watching from a distance is what we see in Mark 15. But it's actually part of Mark's powerful point in his story Mark's point is that this was necessary, that everyone abandoned Jesus. And not just that Jesus did suffer and die alone. Mark makes the point in chapters 14 and 15 that Jesus had to suffer and die alone. He had to. And the reason is this, because only Jesus could bear the sins of the world. Remember, that's why he went to the cross. And no one else can do it. No one else can even help him with it. 
See, the Bible says if you want a relationship with God, you want to be saved, you want to be forgiven, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus your good deeds. Not Jesus plus how religious you are. Only Jesus. And so in some sense, fleeing, in, in the story of Mark anyway, is necessary up to a certain point. Even Peter, the gung-ho chief disciple, wanted to go to the, the cross with Jesus and Jesus says, no, you will deny me three times. And that's exactly what happens. Right? You can't go with Jesus. He has to do it alone. But you see, like fearing, like keeping quiet, there is an expiry date to this one as well. Now that Jesus has finished his solo work on the cross, now that he's alive again, the time to run away is over. It's not time to flee, but to follow. It's time to be disciples again. And that's what verse 7 means. Remember, the angel tells the women that Jesus is a going ahead of them to Galilee. Galilee is an important geographic marker because Galilee was the place where it all began. It's a place where Jesus first called his disciples to follow him. All right, go ahead. Jesus will meet you there in Galilee. The angel's saying, look, Fresh start is beginning. Your Lord is risen. Now is not the time to run. Now is the time to once again renew your following of Jesus because he is alive and he's king forever. All right? So again, the women get it wrong by fleeing instead of following. Now, let me summarize. We've got, you see here, why the women disciples and their reaction at the end of Mark 16 is, at least in three ways, the wrong thing to do. The great failure at the time of great triumph, instead of fearing, they should have figured it out. Instead of silence, they should have spoken up. Instead of fleeing, they should have been following. But they do the opposite. And then the story ends. And then we roll to credits. And it comes back to the question I asked right at the beginning. Why would Mark end like this? You read the other biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Luke, John, and it doesn't end like this. Jesus doesn't even make another appearance in the book of Mark. Uh, the disciples don't even get a chance to redeem themselves in the book of Mark. In the other Gospels, right, they don't come off so badly. They do go back and follow Jesus. They go tell the world about Jesus. But not Mark. Mark just ends here. Women afraid, women being quiet, and women running away. Why does he end like this? What is Mark trying to tell us? Well, I'm up to my final point. And here's the reason. Here's the reason. Is he like a good movie that ends without all the loose ends tied up? The reason why Mark does this is, is the reason why Christopher Nolan did it in Inception. It's so that the question can then be turned on the audience, you see, or the reader. He's getting you to finish the story. Yeah? He's getting you and me to finish the story. And that makes sense when you understand how Mark began. Um, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of Mark opens with the beginning of the gospel, which means good news, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I wonder how you understand the, the beginning part. Is Mark saying this is like the preface, right? This chapter 1, maybe, is the preface. This is the beginning of the gospel, but when I get into chapter 2... That'll be the rest of the gospel. Is that what he means by the beginning? It just means the first part of Mark? Or what I think he might mean is this. Maybe the whole book is just the beginning. Do you, do you get what I mean? Like the whole of Mark is the beginning of the good news of Jesus. These events that he's recorded is the beginning. Right up to chapter 16, verse 8 is still just the beginning. And, and, and that's his point. 
I, I'm just telling you the beginning, but you've got to finish it. You've got to continue it. The good news of Jesus continues far beyond the pages that he's written. So Mark's ending is, is an anti-ending of sorts. So that we, as we're faced with Jesus being alive, knowing that he is now really the king, that we would now ask ourselves, what are we going to do? How are we going to continue the story? Are we going to be like the women disciples here? Run away. Stay silent. Not get it. Not follow. Or are we going to do what they failed to do? I think that's what Mark is getting us to think about, discuss about. Off the coast of India is an island called the Sentinels. The Sentinelese are a tribe of indigenous people who have managed, with the help of the Indian government, to seal themselves off from the modern world for hundreds of years. Now, earlier this month, you might know this story, John Allen Chow, 26-year-old American missionary, tried to make contact with them so that he could share with them the love of Jesus and the message about Jesus. So uh, Chow arranged illegally for a local fisherman to take him close to the island so that he could give out some gifts of scissors, safety pins, fishing line, soccer ball. Um, After landing on the island and uh, he's confronted by the natives, he yells out, my name is John, I love you and Jesus loves you. Uh, He tries to hand out the gifts though, Uh, When a boy um, with a bow and arrow shoots him with a bow and arrow, he he doesn't get injured. He he hits the Bible that he was holding. Um, He gets on his kayak and paddles away as quickly as possible. He escapes without injury back onto the fishing boats, and he's debating whether he should return. Well, then on November 16, only a couple of weeks ago, he goes again, and he tells the fisherman this time, don't stay for him. Come back the next day because he would try and stay overnight on the island. The next day, November 17, when they pass by the island, they see the islanders dragging his body on the beach with a rope. And he was obviously murdered sometime between November the 16th and 17th. Now, if you've been keeping up with the news, uh, social media especially, there's massive debates, articles, everything written about, and by both Christians and non-Christians, about whether or not John Chow was a hero or an idiot. Now, and really the answer is, it, it's actually pretty complex, okay? There's not, not a simple thing, whether you think he's a hero or an idiot. It's not that black and white, not that simple. But um, what was interesting is a lot of the criticism that you read about, and mostly coming from those outside, but s- coming from some even within the church, is that there should be no reason, right? no reason at all why anyone in this day and age should do what he tried to do, to risk their lives to try and convert others. Now, that is something from a bygone era of colonialism and imperialism, of the West trying to, you know, take over other countries and other cultures and destroy them. It's arrogance. It's offensive. These primitive people, just let them happily live, leave them alone. Get even some people saying, this guy, by trying to do this, he deserved what he got. Now, however you feel about John Allen Chow's wisdom, his methods, I want you to know his reasons were in no doubt. Because he wrote to his family a letter, the last letter he wrote to them before he died, 
you won't be able to read that scroll, but he says, you guys might think I'm crazy in all of this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. It's not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand. And I can't wait to see them around the throne of God worshiping in their own language. Now, did he know the risks he was taking? Yes. He knew he could die. Did he prepare? Yes. In fact, we, we found, found out just this week he actually did get medical checkups. He did get vaccinated so that he wouldn't unnecessarily um, kill the tribe with Western diseases and pathogens. He knew that that was a danger and he took precaution. And he certainly didn't want to die. He wrote in his journal, I don't want to die. Right? I don't want to die. Who will take my place if I do die? Oh God, I miss my parents. Some of the words he wrote in his journal. He's not looking to die. He's not stupid in that way. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise in missionary endeavors, perhaps wiser than John Allen Chow. I just want us to think about whether we understand what it means that Jesus is written, be, uh, risen. Because here's the thing, if Jesus is still dead, if the tomb wasn't empty, if he stayed dead, then yes, 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 John Allen Chow is a fool. And yes, what he's trying to do is at best foolish, at worst evil. If Jesus stayed dead. But have you thought about what difference it makes that Jesus is alive? Because if Jesus is alive, then John Allen Chow is right. Not so much his methods, maybe, but he's right in his motivation. If Jesus is alive, then people need to hear about him and the good news he offers. If Jesus is alive, then his followers should risk their lives, even risk dying to bring the good news to others. If Jesus is alive, then those who are completely unreached, like the Sentinelese, need someone to reach them with the good news of Jesus. I mean, criticize his wisdom and his methods, but please be challenged by his heart. He understood that because Jesus is alive, now is not the time for fearing, for silence, or for fleeing. But if you figured it out, then you will speak, and you will follow, and you will do that even at the risk of death. We had a great workshop, didn't we, on the weekend away about sharing the news of Jesus by Grant. I wonder if you thought much about it, the uh, things that he shared about over there. If you weren't there, by the way, they're, they're online. Please listen to it. It's a great workshop, probably the best I've ever sat in. Uh, and I wonder if you, you thought about all the kind of tips and things that he gave us. It was fantastic. I want to pose a question to you. Do you know what the biggest obstacle is to people around you coming to know Jesus? What, is, what do you think is the, the biggest obstacle to people around you coming to know Jesus? Now, you probably have a number of things you think about, but I want to suggest to you it's not their brokenness, no matter what they've done or how far away they've walked away from God. It's not their stubbornness. It's not going to be the biggest obstacle. It's not even their intellectual objections, their hard questions or their, you know, 
I mean, they're all obstacles, but they're small compared to what I think is the biggest obstacle to them coming to know Jesus. What is that biggest obstacle? I want to suggest to you it's idolatry. It's idolatry. Idolatry is worshipping something or someone other than God. Now, you might be thinking here, oh yeah, I get it, because you know, I, a lot of my friends or family, they're Buddhists, or they worship another God, or even the God of money, and yeah, yeah, that's standing in the way. No, no, I don't mean their idolatry. The single biggest obstacle for people around us coming to know Jesus is not their idolatry. It's our idolatry. You got that? It's my idolatry. Your, see, God can and does and will overcome any of those obstacles that we talked about. Brokenness, stubbornness, intellectual object. When people accept the good news, it is a supernatural thing. God, by His Holy Spirit, opens their eyes and some people with the biggest objections, boom. You've seen that. Some of you may have been that. God overcomes it. He can do that, just like that. Sometimes over a long period of time, but He does it. But I'll tell you, they cannot believe unless they hear about the good news. And they cannot hear unless we go and speak or invite them so someone else can speak it to them. So why don't we speak it and invite them? It's not because of their idols. It's because of our idols, yeah? Our idols of comfort, security, approval. We're afraid to lose friends, lose respect, give up time, give up money, give up careers, give up comforts. And so we don't speak and invite and put ourselves out there and because those things have become more important to us than following Jesus. It's our idols, you see, that's stopping people hearing about Jesus and therefore coming to know Jesus. But I hope today you see Mark's point. Jesus is alive. He really is. Not spiritually alive, not metaphorically alive, really alive. And because He is alive, everything must change. Right? The time for fear and silence and fleeing is over. He is alive, never to die again. He is the king and he owns the world. He, it belongs to him. And he has conquered sin and death and offers forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who trusts in him. And he is coming back to judge everyone. He is alive. So how are you going to finish Mark's story? This Christmas and following Christmas, as we hit the new year, February especially, we're going to ramp up towards a month of invitation month where all the questions you ask your friends, questions for God, we're going to take the top four and we're going to deal with them. And then following that is going to be fresh. Next fresh will be back in Bankstown in March. There's going to be so many opportunities for you to invite, right? Greg Borg said, you know, for 10% of any church congregation, they're going to be the ones going out there to, 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 to speak about Jesus. The other 90% are going to be evangelists by inviting. And that's great. And that's what you've done. That's what I've seen you do. There's going to be lots of opportunities over the next three months to do exactly that. Do they take up the invitation? That's not up to you. But we can invite but to do that, you see, we're all going to have to overcome some barrier, some fear. It was helpful to hear Grant talk about, 
you know, you kind of meet this guy, he's talking about evangelism, and he's so well-spoken, you think, this guy would never struggle with talking about Jesus. And he said, you know, the first time he just had to tell someone he was a Christian at the gym, that was hard, right? Because he had to overcome fear of someone thinking badly about him. And I don't know, maybe for you, it's just telling a colleague or someone you study with that you are a Christian. That might be the big thing to do. For others, it's to take that next step and say, will you come with me to Christmas service? Will you come with me to Fresh next year? Will you tell me your story so that I can tell you mine? I don't know what it is for you, but there's got to be fear at some point. But you see, if Jesus is alive, then we've got to lay down our idols, our fears, and courageously speak and follow our King and Savior. So let's complete the story. Let's pray.